I'm not sure if this is pollen or exactly what it is. I know it's very irritating and has been for over a week now. But uh, if I have to drink a little bit more water today, forgive me for that, that but allow me that privilege, if you will. We're going to continue in our study of the seven churches and the letters addressed to each in the revelation of Jesus Christ this morning. Today we look at Pergamos, uh, capital of Pergamum. This particular city was, was under a Roman authority. It was the, the farthest north of any of our cities that we've discussed or will discuss. It was about 60 miles or so north of Smyrna. It's also about 15, not Smyrna, South Carolina either. Okay, this is, just wanted to clear that up for you. It's also about 15 miles away from the coast of the Aegean Sea. Still exists today under a different name, Bergamus. Population, 14,000. The name Pergamum meant a citadel, meaning a high point of defense. And yet, Rome took over this province in about 130 B.C. The town of Pergamus became a center for the worship of all gods pagan. In fact, a temple for the worship of Augustus Caesar was built in 29 A.D. Smyrna built a big amphitheater for emperor worship. So this was becoming a more and more commonplace thing in some of the cities that were around that area. There, there was another uh, worship god in Pergamos. It was the god of healing. And there was a university for medical study. In fact, the symbol for this god was a snake entwined around a staff. You think about it, we still use that symbol today in medicine. This was big stuff at that time. Pergamos housed a great library, second only in the world to Alexandria, Egypt's library, with roughly 200,000 volumes. So we can kind of gather from all of this information that beliefs could have been all over the map in this general area. In fact, the amount of pagan worship in this place gave cause for a statement that Jesus knew who lived in that place. It was Satan. And that was where his throne was. While we might think that York, South Carolina is the, the county seat for York County, we might see Pergamos as the center of business for the provincial seat uh, and the provincial seat for Satan. For you see, pagan worship in its base form was also known for all kinds of immorality. So you could call Pergamos religious in one sense, perhaps maybe in a Christian way, maybe in a non Christian way on one side, but it also had to be considered extremely wicked on the other. Interestingly, it's possible Satan's throne was perhaps a real throne, one that you could see, one physical. For you see, there was a 40 foot tall throne like altar built to Zeus there. So it could very easily have been considered. The, the throne of Satan. Notice in our reading this morning, immediately, another description in this letter for Jesus as he starts the letter. He is the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. 
Now, look back one chapter and you'll see in chapter 1, verse 16, there was a description of one described as like a man, Jesus, who had a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And if you look at Hebrews 4, verse 12, we'll see that this is perhaps describing um, something else. Listen closely to these words from Hebrews 4. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So Jesus is carrying God's Word with Him as our shield and defense. He uses the sword to oppose the wicked evil uh, uh, at Satan's throne. Now, Jesus has set the scenario here. He's saying that he knows the situation that the church finds itself in the midst of, which is a reminder that he knows today what evil and, and all that we may find ourselves in the midst of. We understand that he's talking about the church in our reading here, but he's also implying to us that he can see our sins individually as well. He's telling us that too, yet he wants us to know that he is watching not, not as one who is looking for our mistakes, but as one who is watching over us, seeing and protecting us, protecting us with his Father's Word. When you get the chance, read my favorite prayer in the entire Bible. It's John 17. Specifically, look at verses 13 through 20. And you'll see that Jesus has been watching over us before we were ever born. That'll continue as we go into the future, no matter what that may look like. And He will continue seeing and protecting us. The letter continues. Jesus says, all this evil I know about, is going on around you, and yet you remain faithful to me. You could have given up your faith, he implies, renouncing my name as, as others like Antipas could have done and, and lived to tell about it. Yet here you have live right around the corner from Satan's seat, and somehow, some way, you remain faithful. Unfortunately, we don't know much about Antipas except that he was a faithful witness for the cause of Christ. And yet that alone speaks volumes about that particular man. Look, today though, if we were in that similar position as Antipas, what would we be remembered for? So far we have a church here that if it, were, if it weren't a sin, we could be envious over it. I think every church would want to have this faithfulness be known about them, and yet something wasn't quite right. Perhaps you've heard the story of the Trojan horse and the, the lost city of Troy. According to Homer's Iliad, Greeks besieged Troy for 10 years with no success. They attacked outside the city and got nowhere. The warrior Achilles had, had died and many simply wanted to give up the fight. But the king of Ithaca, Odysseus, devised a plan that would get the Greek army into Troy, finally. So the king had a huge wooden horse constructed, totally hollow, 
on the inside. The horse was to be offered as a peace gift to, uh, to Troy. As the Greek army supposedly sailed away after delivering their gift, the people of Troy felt like they had everything under control. Victory over the Greeks was finally, after ten years, theirs. The surprise was that the Greek army and the king would, of course, be waiting inside the horse. So, the horse was rolled into Troy. And while everyone in Troy slept, we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey might say. The people of Troy were destroyed. The Greek army destroyed Troy from within the city walls. They quit trying to do it from the outside because they were too strong, impenetrable. And yet, once they got inside, they easily defeated the sleeping Troy population. Well, that was what was beginning to happen in the church at Pergamos, so it appears. Whereas last week where Satan was attempting to crush the church in Smyrna from outside, he was trying to collapse the church in Pergamos from within the church. That's something that just wasn't quite right, was compromise that was taking place within the church. In essence, the church was asleep. It was a, a willingness, willingness to let the world come in and be a part of God's kingdom. It's a problem that has plagued the church since its inception. It's not a new phenomenon in the church at all. It was and is a problem even today. And in this particular case, it was coming through an old nemesis of the kingdom. Actually, one was old and one was relatively new. On one side, we see the teaching of Balaam. We see the situation in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 and on. It's a long read, but I would encourage you to read that particular story from beginning to end. But it also includes the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That was a little more current for them. We'll briefly describe each of these that that had wormed their way into the church. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. He was attempting to be hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Balaam seeks God's advice, and God tells him not to go with the men from Moab to curse the people of Israel. And that's exactly what he should have done. He started good. He, he maintained that for a little while, and it was a good thing. But Balaam tells the Moabites that God had told him he shouldn't curse Israel. So, thank you, but no thank you. They wouldn't take no for an answer, however. And so, they upped the ante for Balaam's services, and he goes with them, finally. While Balaam didn't directly curse the nation of Israel, he did tell Balak, the king, to corrupt the Jews by having their pagan women intermarry with the Jewish men and they would eventually begin to bow down to their idols. This way, of course, uh, he, he could still receive his money for his services. Well, sure enough, that's what happened. And the doors of evil were open to God's people. Though it was not a direct curse to God's people by Balaam, 
It brought the Jews out of relationship with God once again. More or less, the Moabites would corrupt the Jews from within. The church at Pergamos was allowing these same things to take place within the church. They were compromising themselves and their beliefs, marrying themselves to the world so that they, the world could enter into them. Sadly, there are some denominations in the world today that are still doing this. We look today at the beliefs that we have, and honestly, just in this country alone, have had for almost 250 years. And of course, other parts of the world have varied pagan beliefs as well. Yet simply focusing on our part of the world, we see how many churches, under whatever term you want to have it, have, have used to relax their opinions about things such as hell, about creation, about God, and who He is. Some are even suggesting that God is a female. Some doctrinal stances now, and this flies in the face of John 14 verse 6, tells us that heaven is attainable without believing in Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, in Christ's birth, burial and death, burial and subsequent resurrection. All to appease the world. Because the world wants to see it another way. Paul, the Apostle Paul, called it tickling the itching ears. I've read articles recently attempting to explain away other sins that the world are now seeing as good. We're seeing now, just as Paul said in, in his uh, epistles, that we will see that things will be declared good that are bad, and bad things will be declared good. And the world will accept it. We must not. They are attempting to get us to marry into the world, as it were, just as they did in the days of Balaam. And they're using us, the church, as their vehicle. How in the world all this can take place and people actually believe it is beyond me. And yet, the answer is right in front of us. Satan's throne is located right near us wherever we live, wherever we work. And if we are not careful, wherever we worship. Romans 12, 2 warns us when Paul writes, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Did you get that? Then we will be able to test and approve. For if we don't do that, the world can easily find its way in to the church. The Michelatans, on the other hand, we, we unfortunately don't know a whole lot about this particular group. We can kind of surmise a little bit here when we understand that the term means to, to conquer the people. It's possible that this group believed in grace for salvation, but went to the extreme that because of that grace, you could go out and live any way you wanted to. It's diametrically opposed to living a righteous life. 
accept Christ then, and then go out and live as immoral a life as you want to. Live a life of, of no obedience to God. Live without love being a motivating force behind all that we do, and you will still be saved. It's possible that it was named after a man named Nicholas. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We see that he was one of the first deacons from Acts 6 verse 5. Don't know if it's the same person or not, but it's, it kind of leads to that direction. We know for, for sure that Christ hated it. We see in our first church, the church in Ephesus, one thing they had going for them was that they, like Jesus, the writer of the letter, hated the doctrinal stances that the Nicolaitans had. You had to figure that this was serious because Jesus did not throw the word hate around very much. He hated what the Nicolaitans stood for. So from this we can see that if the world gets a foot in the door of the church, it can lead to horrible problems. We have to guard against these and whatever other false doctrines might attempt to sneak in the door. But you can bet these sort of things are not going to come in the front door with guns blasting or with trumpets blowing. They'll simply sneak in the back door. As a reminder, Galatians 5.16, the Apostle Paul tells us to live by the Holy Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We can guard against these, entering, these things entering into the church or into our lives. We must guard against them. But we don't do any of these things, you may think. Just to be on the safe side, let me ask you this. Do you do or say anything that might cause a brother or sister in Christ, or even one who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, to question what you're doing or saying? Part of what Jesus is writing about here is in verse 14. It concerns eating food sacrificed to idols. Okay, you may say, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. I'm good. I don't have to listen to this. Well, it does go a little bit deeper than that, okay? Meat sold in the marketplace wouldn't have been considered evil in and of itself. You look at a piece of meat, other than the fact that it's a sin that they're so high priced now, you could get a steak for a reasonable price, you know? <laughs> Not anymore. You got to take out a second mortgage on the house. That's another thing. I'm sorry. But I mean, you're just looking at a slab of meat, you're not going to say, oh, that's evil. That's sacrifice to the idols, or it's going to be. No, you wouldn't say that. But if it was associated with idolatry in any way, shape, or form, it was conveying a message that went against Christianity. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says that sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. Verses 21 and 22 says this bluntly. You cannot have a part of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he, Paul asks us? The meat offered to sacrifice to idols was meant for demons' tables. Don't bring evil into the church. Do we engage in questionable activities? Things that if, if people saw us taking part would make them question if we were a Christian or not. You ever thought about that? 
The things that you say, the places you may go, the things that you do. Could people, Christian or not, could they confuse us as non-Christians? Think about that. Well, I'll tell you what. I don't need any excuse about going to church. I'm not going to church. Everybody in there is a bunch of hypocrites. You won't catch me in that church. And you know what? They're absolutely right. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. We try to do what's right in God's eyes, but we don't always hit the target, do we? But we're giving others that excuse by being involved in doing and saying things that we as Christians at times have no business being involved in. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We need to avoid the appearance of evil. We need to repent. We need to change from those ways, Jesus tells us. His bride, the church. And he tells us individually as well. We have no business being a part of those things. We see lastly in verse 17 that he will give us hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. Thank you, Stephen, for the music this morning. That last uh, song that we did with the white stone, it's perfect. Anyway, that white stone is known to only the one who will receive it. There are two rewards then for those who overcome. That is for then and, and and for now. We see in John 6, 49, that our forefathers were fed by manna in the wilderness, but they died. In John 6, 50 and 51, Jesus says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread, he says, which came down from heaven. And he says this emphatically to us today. If a man eat of this bread, he will live forever. Can it get any plainer than that? I don't think so. It was like the bread that we have each week. That reminder of who we belong to. This food is reserved for the righteous for now. Then we get to the white stone. It was used in trials in the Greek courts many years ago. If a white stone was presented, you were declared not guilty. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 Jesus is referred to as the living stone. And if we belong to him, we, like living stones, will be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And this white stone will have our name on it. For many today, being a church of tolerance and compromise is quite attractive. Brings in a lot of people. Becomes the talk of of envious envious preachers at gatherings and presbytery meetings and the like. But that type of church will not be in relationship with God the way I understand God's word here. We simply need to stay on the track of following the teachings and the standards of the two-edged sword. Pergamos teaches us that we can and we should indeed reject the friendship of the world and wholly, totally accept the unique friendship 
of God. My question in closing this morning for Hill City and for you as the individuals that make up this church, which will we do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this lesson of Pergamos. The churches, the churches have been a harsh study, and at times, Lord, it helps us, though, to see what we should be doing or not be doing. Thank you for your care and concern for each, for each of us, seeking us and protecting us as you always have, and yet we know that you always will. So grateful, Lord, that you continue to bless this small congregation, this unique group of people. And yet we ask you, if you would, would you wake us up to go into the world to make a difference for you, to disciple to others, to bring the lost here to you? Not anything that we did, but may we do it to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Holy Spirit, be with us as we go into the world. Help us with words maybe we don't understand. As in prayer, you will guide us. You will give us those words to say. So bless us to that end, we ask you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.